Um, well, uh, since the sermon won't live up to Ben's standard, but at least I can get the weather reports. So it's 53 degrees. There's a six-mile-per-hour south-southeast wind um, gusting to a little over 10 miles an hour. So for the record, that's why um, you're, you're cold. Um, so uh, we're going to take a break from our series in Mark this morning while Pastor Ben and uh, Catherine and family are away. And our reading today is in Matthew chapter 25, verse 33 through the end of the chapter. Now, while you're turning over there, I'll say at the outset um, that you've heard this sermon before, um, at least if you've been in church for some time. Maybe not this very sermon, um, but one like it. Um, But as a, uh, so I won't be telling you anything new. But as a friend of mine uh, once said to me, when it comes to reading the Bible, The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things, Uh, and it's good to be reminded of the plain things that matter to Jesus. So if you have access to your Bible, read uh, along with me, starting in verse 31, Uh, and this passage comes at the end of a series of parables, uh, teachings that Jesus is sharing with his followers about what the kingdom of God uh, will be like. And starting verse 31, he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. 
Well, when she preached a little while back, our friend Lauren started by asking the question, how are you? And she gave us a little space to consider that question. So I'll take the opportunity to ask a similar, but a little bit different question, which is, who are you? Who are you? Are you a parent, a teacher, friend, a professional of some kind, a liberal, a conservative, a Seahawks fan, a beekeeper? And maybe how is the who that you are today different from what it was in the past? For many of us, COVID changed how we think about who we are in some ways, but other things too. Uh, the coming of an empty nest, the death of a spouse, the end of a job or a career, graduation, retirement, sickness, sometimes good things, sometimes bad things. But all of them change in some way how we think about who we are. And we are people of identity and belonging, aren't we? Who we are and who we feel we belong with matters a great deal to us. And as a church, both at Union Hill and in the broader church, I think we're wrestling with who we are and who are we going to be. The world seems to be changing. We've been meeting under tents for the better part of a year. Who would have thought that? So much about life that we took for granted seems to have been upended. And many of us are much more aware of the fragility of our world and injustices in it, much more visible to us than they used to be. And even the very labels that we've used for ourselves in the past don't seem quite adequate anymore, do they? Are we Christians or evangelicals or something else? Or are we keen not to be evangelicals? Are we progressive Christians or ex-evangelicals or something else? And even those terms seem to be more about politics than anything having to do with our faith or our practice. Um, and in politics, are you a conservative or a liberal or a social justice warrior or a patriot? Terms sometimes we put on ourselves, sometimes others try to put on us, but almost universally intended to divide and distinguish us from one another rather than to clarify anything about who we are or what we do. We are those who are not them. And the divisions that separate those outside of the church from one another, divisions of race and class, gender, sexual orientation, maybe now most importantly divisions of politics and worldview, those divisions separate us from our neighbors and our loved ones. And even in the church, they run as cracks between us, sometimes visible on the surface, 
sometimes below the surface, but just. And sometimes those cracks seem unbridgeable, don't they? At least they sometimes do to me. And it's interesting to consider how when we think about identity, the label, which is itself necessarily just an abstraction, just a word, it's letters, sounds that we utter, right? The label can somehow become the identity itself and prevent us from really thinking about the substance of the thing. We come to associate the label with a set of feelings and prejudgments, emotions. The label lets us skip right over considering specific actions, lets us avoid having to think about nuance or shades of gray. Labels give us comfort comfort in identity, us and them, we are good, they, whoever they are, are bad. Well, in Jesus' day and to the hearers of this passage, the labels that would have been most relevant were Jew and Gentile. The word translated in this passage as the nations is commonly translated elsewhere as Gentile, in other words, non-Jews. And to a first century Jewish hearer, if you tell them that the Son of Man is coming in all his glory to judge, placing some on his right and some on his left, the expectation, very likely, would have been that the label would correspond to the outcome. Us, Jews on one side, and them, Gentiles, on the other. But it turns out in this passage that the us and the them that Jesus is concerned about has nothing to do with labels. It's funny to me in some ways that uh, he uses sheep and goats because one is not obviously good and bad. He might have said blue and green, you know, with like kids' soccer teams where they've decided to get rid of gold, or silver, and bronze. He might have, it, there's this very abstract quality about that label, right? It doesn't, but it, but it, but it, so it has no connotation of that kind. But it has to do, it doesn't have to do with the ideas in their heads. I, I think so much of how we think about our us and them and our Christianity is a set of ideas. We are us because we hold the right ideas. But in this passage, Jesus doesn't ask about ideas at all. There's nothing abstract about the way Jesus judges us and them here, how he makes this division. Listen again to the language that he uses. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Is there anything more concrete, more earthy than that? In English, these are mostly one-syllable words, one- and two-syllable words, right? This is a very direct, concrete thing. Jesus knows his sheep by what they do. 
Now, I know that Ephesians says that we're saved by faith alone, lest any man should boast, but you have to understand that in light of this passage and others. Jesus says he will know who are his sheep by whether they give food to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, welcome to the immigrant or stranger, clothe those who are naked, visit those who are sick, and go to those who are in prison. Now, I keep repeating this because it's so elemental. I mean, sometimes there's this, I, always, I started with the idea that the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things because it is, it, it, it is very plain and we do tend to intellectualize this, but there's, there's, there's a really important directness about this that I want you to kind of feel and sort of marinate in, right? Um, as a church, we've leaned into this vision this year, right? The food truck ministry, uh, the Mercy Team, and a variety of other actions, uh, we've prioritized feeding the hungry and helping those who are sick or in need. It's not glamorous work. It doesn't allow anyone to posture about the superiority of their ideas. But it's the work that Jesus recognizes. And I know that many of you do this today. One of the things I think characterizes Union Hill Church is we are a generous and kind people. Um, but I guess my question for us today is, is this a part of your, our spiritual discipline? Is serving the poor and hungry a part of how we set out to meet Jesus? Are we doing it with intentionality? So I want to encourage us not to overly intellectualize this, not to make it abstract. That's our tendency in this post-enlightenment world is to abstract things and make them. Um, let's, keep it, let's keep it concrete. Are you involving yourself directly in these things? Because that's where we meet Jesus. So a series of questions for us. Who are the hungry and thirsty that you are feeding and giving drink. We've leaned into this with the food truck ministry. Maybe there are other people in your life where you're able to do this. If not, that's a great concrete way to do it. You can be here on a Friday night. You can support that ministry by giving. Maybe there are other ways. We are looking as a church into how we expand that ministry, how we keep it going. It's a very resource-intensive ministry. How can you be a part of that? If it's not that, where else are you doing that thing? Are you feeding the hungry and giving drink to the thirsty? Who are the naked you are clothing? It's a little bit of an odd one in a post-industrial revolution world. Uh, we... Unlike Jesus' day, um, people are rarely naked because of poverty. Um, and some interpret this passage as rather than naked, the uncovered. For me, that immediately makes me think of the homeless. Um, and we have no shortage uh, right here uh, from Redmond, but certainly into Seattle and, and beyond uh, of finding homeless people. Um, 
a few months ago, our youth team organized uh, a uh, clothing drive for the New Horizons uh, ministry where they gathered coats and, and other clothing for kids, a very practical way to, 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 to provide, in that case, clothing. Um, but maybe of other things you're doing, but ask yourself, what uncovered people am I helping to get clothing or shelter? And who are the strangers that you're welcoming? We know from many other places in scripture that the concept of stranger relates to the idea of being an immigrant or a refugee. Deuteronomy 10.19 says, you shall also love the stranger for you, meaning the Israelites, were strangers in the land of Egypt, right? They were, they were refugees in a foreign land. According to the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, there are over 79.5 million forcibly displaced people in the world. In many cases, these are people who have been forced to leave home uh, and loved ones with nothing but the clothes on their back. Uh, in the U.S., for the last several years, we've limited the number of refugees able to enter to just about 18,000 per year, as against 79.5 million refugees in the world. What are you doing to welcome the stranger and comfort the displaced? Uh, maybe right here, there are refugees and immigrants all around us um, of various kinds. Um, maybe elsewhere. Maybe there are groups doing this work, this work elsewhere that you want to support. But what are you doing uh, to support the stranger, to welcome the stranger? And who are the sick you're visiting? Um, so many of you are generous in this regard. Uh, I know that both the Mercy team and many of you do this for one another routinely. And, and many of us, probably all of us at some time, have sick uh, people in our own families, our own circles. But I, I guess I would ask, I'd be remiss because Jesus cares about it. Who are the sick that you're visiting? Um, and what about prisoners? This often gets left out. I think in, as we think about this passage, um, it's something about our culture in particular, or very kind of law and order culture, and, and it's, it, it is uh, acceptable for us in a cultural frame to put the prisoner beyond the, the bounds, beyond the pale. Um, but the United States has the largest incarcerated population of any developed country, we'll put China to one side, but of any um, uh, uh, developed country, millions of our fellow citizens are in prison today. Um, and we sometimes say that Jesus has a heart for the outcast. Well, prisoners are the literal outcast. They have been by law cast out of society into a place beyond uh, community. And Jesus tells us his heart is for them and he wants us to go to them. He will judge us by whether we go to them. I don't know what that means. I don't know. I mean, I'm wrestling with this question. What, is it, what does that mean for, for me? But I don't think it means nothing. And so how are you fulfilling that vision? We can't do everything but we can do something. 
sometimes we're tempted to look at the magnitude of suffering and become overwhelmed and decide that I can't make a dent. I don't know where to start. So I won't do anything. Um, but Jesus tells us clearly here, if you don't know where to start, start with the least of these. Start with the least of these. Who's the least in your world? I don't know the answer to that. I, I, it's going to be different for each of us, I suspect, in some ways. Who is the least in your world? And how do you serve them? Start with the people in front of you. You can't do everything, but you can do something. And the last question I have for you is this. Um, I'll keep it mercifully brief on this sort of not-so-pleasant not spring morning. What are the labels you're relying on to reach judgments about people? What are the labels that divide you from others? Look for the times you talk about or think about people and reduce them to one or two words. Labels, descriptions that are, aren't about what they do, just a label. Liberals, conservatives, this, that, doesn't matter. See what nuance they're causing you to miss. What actions are they causing you to ignore? What lack of actions in yourself are they letting you off the hook for? We're tempted to let labels divide us from one another. Inside the church and outside of it, we let abstractions define us and others. But remember that Jesus will know us not by the labels we put on ourselves, but what we do for the least of these. He'll know us because we fill bellies, because we quench dry throats. He'll know us because we warm cold bodies, welcome strangers, and visit sick and lonely people and prisoners. How you doing on that score? How am I doing on that score? Where's the heart of Jesus in this crazy world where we seem to be unable to agree on almost anything? Is his heart with us or them? Where's the heart of Jesus? It's with the poor, the hungry, the stranger, the lonely, the oppressed, the prisoner, and the one who cares for them. There. To be there. <laughs>